We're going to be in Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. We're continuing in our Luke series. And once you get there, say, I got it. You got it. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, it will be behind me on the screen and the ESV translation, which will be my translation. And this is what the word of the Lord says. It says, and he, being Jesus, said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. With great power comes great responsibility. Now most people know that this famous line comes from comics and movies starring Spider-Man. It's told to him by his Uncle Ben to emphasize that those with power have a responsibility to use it for good. And while none of us here, I think, can shoot web out of our wrists or climb up walls like a spider, we all have responsibilities, right? If you have a job, you have a responsibility to do what your employer asks of you. If you're a student um, in high school or middle school or elementary school, you have a responsibility to learn, to do homework, to listen to your teachers, and so forth. We even have responsibilities as members of our families, right? So if you were a member of the TV family, the Waltons, you know, you had to yell everyone's name throughout the house during every single episode. But whatever family you're in, there are certain responsibilities that you have, certain traditions, certain things to uphold certain family values. And our text today deals with the familial responsibilities that we have as disciples of Christ. And these responsibilities are specifically towards other members in our faith community. So if you look at verse 1 of Luke 17, it says, And he said to his disciples. And so what we see is there has been a shift in Jesus' audience. In Luke 16, he was talking to the Pharisees. He was talking to the hypocritical religious leaders. But now there's a shift. He's talking to his disciples. So whatever he's about to say is for, is for his disciples disciples. And he's going to give them five responsibilities or duties that we have as disciples of Jesus Christ. And the first responsibility is this, pay attention. He says that in verse three, our first responsibility as a disciple of Christ is to pay attention. He begins this chapter with saying that it will be impossible for us as Christians, impossible for us to avoid temptations to sin. We live in a world full of temptations. We know this to be the case. However, the Greek that is used here 
makes it clear here that the sin that Jesus has in mind, the temptation to sin that Jesus is referring to, is a specific sin. And it's a particularly egregious sin. That's why a gruesome death, like having a millstone tied around your neck and being thrown into the sea, is seen as a just fate for committing this crime. Jesus doesn't have in view here one Christian one Christian pressuring another Christian to tell a joke they shouldn't say. He doesn't have in view here one Christian pressuring another to tell some juicy gossip they just heard. That's not what Jesus has in view here, although that is bad. What Jesus has in view here, the specific sin that he is speaking about, is tempting Christians to commit the sin of apostasy. Tempting believers to abandon the faith, to irreversibly and abandon biblical Christianity. Jesus is saying, woe to anyone who would tempt someone away from the faith. For the one who wants to tempt someone away from the faith, Jesus says it would be better for them to have a heavy stone, a millstone, tied around their neck and thrown into the deepest parts of the sea to die a gruesome and painful death. He says that is a better fate than the fate of the person who would tempt a Christian to abandon the faith. Because that that fate, the fate of that individual, will be an eternal torment. Now these are not exactly comforting words to open up these ten verses, but for those who follow Jesus, we can actually find immense comfort in these verses, even in these harsh words of judgment. For the believer in Christ, there is comfort, because in them we see Jesus' love for his people. You see, Jesus refers to all who follow him in verse 1 or in verse 2 as little ones. Now, sometimes we think this is a reference to little children. Uh, But in the context, the little ones are everyone who follows Jesus Christ. The term for little ones is a term of endearment. It expresses Jesus' deep love for his people. According to John chapter 10, verses 28 through 29, Jesus says that no one will be able to snatch these little ones from his hand, that those that Christ has purchased with his blood, no one will ever be able to snatch them from his hands. Paul tells us the same thing in Romans 8. He says that those whom God has justified or saved will be glorified, and there is nothing that can separate them from his love in Christ. And so while the salvation of those truly saved, while they are secure, Jesus still pronounces woes on those people who would even try to lead them astray. To the one who tries to lead away one of Christ's followers away from the faith, it would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck. These people, when they see God, will be like the people in the book of Revelation who, when Jesus returns, begs for the stones to fall on them and crush them. For that would be a better fate than to face the wrath of God for trying to take away one of his little ones. And now at this point, we probably think that Jesus has in mind the Pharisees, atheists, or wicked politicians, right? Because in our culture, when we think of people who try to take away Christians from the true faith, that's who we often think about, right? We think of people outside of the faith community. But remember, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's not talking to the Pharisees or the religious leaders. He's talking to those who follow him. 
Jesus is telling them to watch themselves, to pay attention, to be careful that they would not get into the place of tempting people away from the faith. Jesus is saying that this temptation comes not necessarily just from outside the church, not outside the group of disciples, but this temptation can come from within. The danger of apostasy, of abandoning the faith, can come from within the church itself, through false teaching and false practice. And so when Jesus tells the disciples to watch themselves, he is saying, guard your teaching and guard your lifestyle. Guard your teaching and guard your lifestyle. The most obvious way that one tempts Christians away from the true faith is through false teaching. Is by presenting a vision of God that is rooted not in, the, not in the Scriptures, but in feelings or what we want the Bible to say. You know, they may say that Jesus is just one way to heaven, not the only way. They may say that the Old Testament and anything before the cross is irrelevant for us today. And so, kind of a way to get out of Christian obedience. They pervert and twist what the Bible says to fit their own agendas and desires. And this is the oldest trick in the book, in Genesis 3, when Satan meets Eve in the garden. He says, he asks her, did God really say? He twists the word of God. That's the question that is behind so much false teaching. Did God really say that? When churches and teachers fail to take seriously the Word of God and how God has revealed Himself. When we pay too little attention to the doctrines of God that God Himself has revealed, they put their flocks and their churches at danger. They leave them vulnerable to the whims and to the schemes of those who attempt true Christians away from the faith. It's no secret that the state of the church in America today is less than ideal. What if the reason for this is not because we took theology and doctrine too seriously, but that we didn't take it seriously enough? What if we got into a complacency when it comes to growing in knowledge of the Lord? And while we were in that complacency, wolves crept in. And they crept in and began to sow these seeds of false teaching and false living. It's rarely ever a good thing to become complacent. A study done by the National Highway Safety Traffic Administration showed that 52% of all car accidents happen within a five-mile radius of one of the driver's homes, and that almost 70% of car accidents happen within a 10-mile radius of home. Right? We often think of car accidents happening in big cities like Atlanta or wherever. But one of the reasons for this, why so many car accidents happen so near to one of the driver's homes is because we become more confident on familiar streets, right? When we're driving down the street, our home is on, or we let our guard down, we kind of become distracted, because we think that since we're in familiar territory, we are at less risk of an accident. We're at less risk of a collision. When in reality, it is those places where we are the most comfortable that we are also at our most vulnerable. We don't have our guard up as high as we do when driving through Midtown Atlanta, right? We too often become complacent and we let our guards down. And so in the Christian life, when we fall into the state of complacency, when we stop watching ourselves and paying attention to our lives and our doctrine, that's when we leave ourselves and our churches 
vulnerable, when we put our faith on cruise control, we just find ourselves going through the motions. And so Jesus is telling us, don't get complacent. Christians, watch what you are teaching and ensure its truthfulness. Watch your lifestyle and ask yourself, is this a life that encourages faithfulness to God and His Word? Or do I live a life that encourages an apathetic or lazy attitude towards it? Am I the friend, ask yourself, am I the friend that proclaims to my friends what God says, or am I often the friend saying, did God really say that? Examine yourself. Is the life I live encouraging holiness in others, or is it giving Christians an excuse not to pursue holiness? Are we watching ourselves? Are we watching our lives and our doctrine in order that we may cling to the biblical faith? We must pay attention to our lives, both as a corporate church and as individual members of it. For that is when wolves begin to creep in with their sheep's clothing. False teaching can wreak havoc in the community of faith, but so can sin. And that is why the second responsibility that Jesus mentions right there in the second part of verse 3 is to rebuke sin. Not only do we have a responsibility to pay attention to our own lives, but we are to rebuke sin. Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And so in this situation that Jesus is painting, he's painting a picture of someone in the faith community has sinned against us. And it is our responsibility as a disciple to go to that person and tell them and call out lovingly and graciously the sin committed. This is not a call by Jesus to go run around 16th Avenue and call out every single sin you see. Right? In politics, there's this idea of journalists as watchdogs. It's their job to watch the every move of the politicians, of those elected to office, and to report what they're doing. So if you were alive in the 1960s, you remember the Watergate scandal and how that broke out because there were watchdog journalists who watched the every move of the people involved and brought down the corrupt politicians, right? They were watchdogs. Watchdogs may be good for politics, but they are unhealthy for the life of the church. People walking around just wanting to call out every single sin they see. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, though, but the problem in the church today is not that too many Christians want to be watchdogs. It's not that we're too eager to hold our brothers and sisters accountable. The problem is that not too many Christians are rushing too quickly to call out sin. The problem is we don't do it at all. We don't call out sin at all. The problem is when someone sins against us, we'll just go to another church. Or we'll tell everyone and their mom about what so-and-so did and not once bring it to the person who has wronged us. Brothers and sisters sin against us or against the church and we remain silent bystanders or we go forth as gossipers. And we can even start to justify our silence, right? The objections start to form in our minds. Who are we to judge others? Doesn't the Bible say we're not to judge? How is it loving for us to rebuke and call out sin? Paul tells the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 5 that we have no business judging those outside the church. Paul tells us that non-believers will act like non-believers. And we're not supposed to be shocked by that. However, Paul does tell the church that we have a responsibility to hold accountable those within the church. 
that the local church has a responsibility to tell its form, not former members, current members, fellow members, when they are doing wrong. That we have a responsibility to let our, our brothers and sisters know when they have begun to go astray. This is what church membership is. When someone joins a church, they're agreeing to be held accountable by the members of that church to help them watch their life and tell them when they're beginning to go astray. And so the issue Jesus speaks against when he says, judge not, is the type of judgment that forgets that we too are sinners. What Jesus says is wrong is the type of judgment that comes atop a high horse. It acts like that we have no sin in our own lives. While Jesus does not use the word church in Luke 17, His commands are commands that we are to obey when doing life with other believers. And today we do that in the context of the church. And the church is a family. And it is a part of our familial responsibilities to call out sin when we see it. Because just like false teaching is dangerous to the faith community, so is unchecked sin. So is sin that is allowed to run rampant amongst brothers and sisters in Christ without being rebuked, without being called out and giving the sinners a chance to repent. Drive throughout the country or drive even throughout our own state. And you can see churches that have ceased to exist because sin amongst its members was not checked, was not lovingly and graciously called out, and reconciliation was not made possible. How many churches have gone to ruin and decay because sin was not called out amongst its members? It is an act of familial love to call out and rebuke sin because it gives the community a chance to see the gospel in action, to see repentance and to see reconciliation, to see brothers and sisters grow closer together. And so not rebuking sin in the faith community is sort of like this, all right? Imagine it's Thanksgiving and your family starts to come over. And so your Aunt Linda, she brings the broccoli casserole. Uh, Your Uncle Tommy, he brings the turkey. Your grandma brings the dessert. And then your crazy uncle comes in and he brings a chainsaw. Okay? And so halfway through Thanksgiving dinner, you know, he's had a real hard week. He's been through a lot. He just starts waving this chainsaw around. And he's wrecking the table, the chairs, the furniture. He's putting holes in the wall, everything. All the kids are huddled in the corner scared. And so in that moment, not saying anything might be the safest option, right? You don't want to get in the way of the chainsaw. You want to protect yourself from any harm or any weirdness that may come up between you and your crazy uncle. It would be safer to just quietly exit out the door while you get to protect your reputation and your relationship with that person. You can start to justify your silence saying, you know, who of us has never brought a chainsaw to Thanksgiving, right? Who am I to judge him? But in the end, not saying anything can lead to disaster, and it can lead to ruin. And so in the same way, when we see people living a lifestyle that can wreak havoc amongst the community of disciples, we have a responsibility to lovingly, to graciously, to without judgment, call out that sin. And when that person repents, when that brother or sister has an opportunity to repent, and does it, we have a third responsibility. And that responsibility is to forgive sins. That's in the third part of verse 3. Jesus says, and if he repents, forgive him. 
And now, we may not like calling out sin, but we really don't like forgiving it, right? At least when we call out sin, we can walk away, you know, feeling morally superior to the other person, patting ourselves on the back. You know, we get to walk away and the other person is just cloaked in shame and guilt. We get to pat ourselves on the back saying, you know, I got to do what God told me to do. But forgiveness is another story. Because forgiveness to a lot of us and to a lot of the world looks like being a coward. In 2017, what became known as the Me Too movement really began to take off as women and men were recounting their stories of abuse that they've had at the hands of peers and bosses. And one of the primary focuses of this movement was a film producer named Harvey Weinstein. And while all this was coming out, there was an actress named Salma Hayek, who was herself a victim of Weinstein, and she said in a New York Times article that her forgiveness was actually a cover for what she saw as cowardice. That her mind to forgive someone was being a coward. Many people perceive the act of forgiving as really just something one does when we don't want to confront injustice, when we don't want to confront wrongdoing. Others see it in a way that just means a wrongdoer gets off scot-free. But the call Christ has upon His disciples is completely counter to what the world tells us to do. And while we don't have time to get a full look at what biblical forgiveness looks like, it's enough to point out that this call to forgive by Jesus is a call to recognize that someone has wronged you. It's a call to say that what happened to you is wrong and then to release the wrongdoer from any liability. To no longer hold it over the head of that person. This is what it means to forgive. And it's something, according to Jesus, that defines the life of a Christian. The life of a Christian is a life of perpetual forgiveness. That's what Jesus means when he says, and if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Jesus is saying the life of a Christian is a life of perpetual forgiveness. Not a call to be a perpetual doormat, but to forgive. That when someone comes to you, repenting of their sin, it is your responsibility as a disciple of Christ to forgive that person. So rebuking sin, forgiving sin. These are responsibilities, if we're honest with ourselves, that are incredibly difficult for us to do, even as Christians. Too often we find ourselves in the words of Dale Ralph Davis, too spineless to rebuke and too resentful to forgive. But is there anything that better reflects the heart of God than a willingness to rebuke and forgive sin. If you read the Old Testament, you know our God is a God who rebukes sin. He has no qualms or hesitations with calling out sin and the horrors that sin brings into our lives and into our eternities. And yet He's also a God who is more willing to forgive repentant sinners than we can even imagine. Not only is He more willing to call out sin, He's more willing to forgive it as well. He is a God who forgives us every time we come to Him in repentance. When we have sinned against Him, not seven times a day, but a thousand times a day, and we come to Him in repentance, we always find forgiveness. This is who our God is. There is no end to His mercy or to His kindness. He has so much mercy, He can give us new ones every single day. And He gives us new mercies every single morning because He knows we need it. 
This is who our God is. He is more willing to forgive and rebuke sin than we can possibly imagine. And this lack of forgiveness is dangerous. Just like false teaching, just like an unwillingness to rebuke sin is dangerous to a community of disciples, so is an unwillingness to forgive. Unforgiveness against brothers and sisters in Christ can cause division, can form cliques, and can build up resentment and make the culture of the church one of hostility. Again, drive throughout the country, and as we're looking at churches that have closed because of unchecked sin amongst its members, you can also see churches that have closed their doors because the members refused to forgive one another. Because they refused, they refused to release one another from the liabilities. When you do life with other Christians, it is not always easy. We will still sin against one another. And it's our responsibility as disciples of Christ to call out that sin and then forgiveness. Because in this, we represent the heart of Jesus Christ. To those who have wronged us, to those who have sinned against us, when we forgive them, we are showing forth, we are glorifying the God who has forgiven us. And so as a professing Christian, refusing to forgive someone who has repented of their sin towards you, what you tell that person in that is what you're saying is, there's mercy for me, but not for you. That God's mercy and grace stops with whatever you did to me. And that is a false picture of Christ. As Christians, we know that our God is forgiving. But as Christians, we also struggle to forgive. And we think, we're like, man, if I just had more faith, if God would just give me an increase in faith, then I can do what He has called me to do. And it appears that the disciples themselves had the same thought. Because look at verse 5. After all this talk of rebuking sin and forgiving sin and watching our lives, the disciples just cry out, increase our faith that we may do this. But so their fourth responsibility that they recognize is to have faith. Pay attention, rebuke sin, forgive sin, and have faith. And if you notice, Jesus doesn't answer their request. They cry out for an increase of faith, and Jesus doesn't say, okay, here it is. You have your faith. Go, go do it. Notice what he says. He says, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, in Jesus' time, a mustard, seed, a mustard seed was seen consistently in that time as being the smallest seed around. And the mulberry tree, in contrast, had large, deep roots. And it could live up to 600 years. So you have one very, very tiny thing, the tiniest seed imaginable, and then you have one of the largest, most long-lasting trees during the time of Jesus. And Jesus says that even a tiny bit of faith, the mustard seed, equips believers to move trees meaning forgiving sin. And so the issue then is not how much faith we have, but if we have faith at all. Jesus is saying, in the, if, to quote H.B. Charles, if you have itsy-bitsy faith, you have the power, you have the ability to rebuke and to forgive sin. So the question is not, how much faith do I have? The question is, do I have faith? Do I understand the object of my faith enough? Our Christian lives begin 
and end and are sustained not by the strength of our faith, but by the object of our faith, by the one in whom our faith is in. The late, great Tim Keller uses this illustration. He says, imagine you are on a high cliff and you lose your footing and you begin to fall. And just beside you is a branch sticking out of the edge of the cliff. It is your only hope and it seems more than strong enough. So how can this branch save you? If you're certain the branch can support you, but you don't actually reach out and grab it, you're lost. If instead your mind is filled with doubts and uncertainty that the branch can hold you, but you reach out and grab it anyway, you will be saved. How can that be? Because it is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. And then he says this, strong faith in a weak branch is, is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. I'm going to say that again. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. What Tim Keller is saying is what Jesus is telling us here in verse 6. That the issue is not how much faith do I have? Do my, does my faith outweigh my doubts? The, pro, the issue at here is do I have faith? Do I understand the object of my faith enough? We need to lay aside the excuse that we don't have enough faith to forgive sins and to call it out. If you have faith in Christ, you have enough faith to do what Christ has called you to do. Not because it's dependent upon you. Not because you can muster up the strength by yourself. But because of the one you have put your faith in, Jesus Christ. Do you understand how gracious and kind and loving He is towards you? Have you beheld His glory and His mercy as displayed on the cross? When we do that, no matter how strong or weak our faith is, we have the power to do something as awe-inspiring as moving a mulberry tree into the sea. And that is to forgive sins, forgiving those who have wronged us. And so, four responsibilities that we've seen disciples of Christ have. Pay attention to our lives, rebuke sin, forgive sin, and have faith. If we are disciples of Christ, and we begin to live this way, because we still have sin, our natural fallen flesh is going to creep in. If we start living this way, a little voice in our head is going to start whispering, saying, well, you know, so-and-so isn't doing what I'm doing. She's just so bitter, and I'm just so forgiving. Or we can start to think that maybe God owes us something for obeying Him. We can start to think, God, I have been so forgiving and sacrificing and watching my life and watching my lifestyle. You know, I think you owe me something. There's got to be something in this for me. We think, God, I've been so faithful in church attendance and in tithing and in being kind to my annoying neighbor. Why did this bad thing happen to me? We do something for Christ. And whether we recognize it or not, we can begin to think God is in our debt. Or that we've just earned a little bit more favor with God. We can start to feel bitterness towards our fellow brothers and sisters. We perceive ourselves to be doing more than them. And we think, you know, they should really start honoring me for all that I do for the church and for other brothers and sisters in Christ. They should really respect me more and notice me more. This is a mindset, if we're honest, that sometimes... We struggle with, and Jesus addresses this mindset. He says it with a parable. He describes a servant who has just come in from plowing the field and keeping sheep. 
And this is a task his master commanded him to do. And he asked the question, what master will begin to serve his servant for doing what the servant was commanded? What reward should be given for doing what is expected? What is told of the servant? And obviously, it's a hypothetical question. Jesus knows that the answer is that no master would reward and give his servant something for doing what he was told. And far from Jesus encouraging rudeness or encouraging bosses to be inconsiderate of their employees, nothing like that, Jesus is addressing the attitude that we as disciples of Christ should have when we serve him. Our fifth responsibility is to have a humble attitude. Disciples should understand that when it comes to serving the Lord, we are unworthy servants. We need to recognize that we are sinful, fallen people who are desperately in need of His forgiveness and kindness. We need to recognize that everything we have and will have is dependent upon Him before and after our conversion. We are not in less need of grace after we're saved than we were beforehand. There is no room for patting ourselves on the back. There's no room for boasting. When fulfilling the responsibilities of a disciple, our attitude is to be one of humility, where we say, I am only doing what was my duty. I'm only doing what my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has called me to do. In a world where people record themselves feeding the homeless, where they share on Facebook every kind deed they've ever done, seeking praise and affirmation, Christians are to take to the background and we're to point the spotlight on Christ and who He is and what He has done. For we are unworthy servants who have been saved, not by works, but by grace. And we remain in the kingdom of God, not by our works, but by God's grace. One of the strangest and most ironic things I've ever seen was in a church that I saw before I came back to Cordial. And this church had a communion table in front, right in front of the altar, and on it had the familiar words, in remembrance of me. Now we know that phrase, in remembrance of me, is meant to be in remembrance of Jesus. And that's why the table was there. But on the side, if you went and walked around the table to the side, there was a little plaque that said, in loving memory of Brother Bill, or whoever donated the money for the table. Now that's kind of a picture, right, of what our heart is sometimes when we give service to Christ. We think, you know, I'm in this to glorify Christ, but if someone could recognize me, that'd be awesome. You know, if someone could like take a picture of me so I could post about this later, that'd be great. You know, we, we admit that this is part, we want recognition. And this is not to say that churches should not recognize and honor their members. But what this is telling us is that when we serve, when we fulfill the responsibilities of a disciple, we are to do it understanding our need for grace. And we are to do it understanding how unworthy we are to even be in the kingdom. And so we are to glorify not ourselves, but Christ. Glorify Christ in holding fast to sound doctrine and sound living. Glorify Christ in your gracious rebuking of sin. Glorify Christ in your forgiving of sin. Glorify Christ by putting your faith in Him and showing the world that He and He alone is worthy of all trust. Glorify Christ. Again, this is not a parable saying we should never tell others what God has done in and through us or what God has done in and through our churches. 
This is not a call to say churches shouldn't celebrate what members are doing. The point of this parable is that when we go forth in service, we are to have a humble attitude that seeks to glorify Christ and to glorify Christ alone. And even notice this. Dale Ralph Davis points out that, when, that Jesus says, when you have done all that you were commanded, then say, we are unworthy servants. Now who of us in here has done all that the Lord has commanded us? No one. It's impossible. And so Jesus is saying, even if you did all that Christ has called us to do as our Master and Lord, even then we are to say we are unworthy servants. Even then we would still stand before God as a debtor of grace. And it is by that grace that we are saved and sustained. Our works do not make God in our debt. Nothing we do puts God in our debt or puts us in more favor with Him. Yes, He is pleased with good works. Yes, He delights when His people are faithful. But we're not more saved when we do what God has called us to do. We're not more deserving of blessings than we were beforehand. Which makes the blessings that God does show forth that much more glorious. The fact that even when we obey, we are still unworthy. That even then, God still pours out and lavishes blessings upon us. That should cause us to break out in worship and in praise. And so as we begin to close, if you've been paying attention in the Luke series, you know that five chapters earlier, Jesus mentions a master who serves his servants. Like here, the answer is no. That master will not serve his servants. But five chapters earlier, in Luke 12, 37, Jesus says, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. Christ is communicating that on one hand, we do not deserve anything but wrath because of our sin. That we deserve nothing but separation from God because of how we have rebelled against Him. And yet on the other hand, our God is more merciful and gracious than our minds can even begin to comprehend. Our God will reward those who have trusted in Christ far more than we can ever imagine. We are to serve Christ, not puffing ourselves up, not looking to build influence or platform in the community, but we are to serve Him in order to glorify Him and His kindness shown to us. We are to glorify Him and how He stood in the place of undeserving sinners like you and me, that we may have eternal life and be saved and brought in to His kingdom. That is the attitude we are to have. That is why we fulfill these five responsibilities. Not to earn more favor with God, not to get a little bit more saved, not to try to put God in our debt, but because we have experienced the greatest blessing in all of eternity. And that is that we no longer fear condemnation. And that we will, no longer, that we will not be snatched out of Christ's hands. Because Christ faced a wrath worse than having a millstone tied around His neck. Christ faced the eternal wrath of God on the cross for your sins and for mine, that we may have eternal life. And when we understand that, and when we believe it, we can go forth humbly in service, glorifying not ourselves, but our Master.